This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. Pastor graciously encouraged me to bring some books uh, to share with you and the church family, which I, uh, which I love doing. And uh, I brought some books tonight that are largely new to the Good News family. These books have uh, come off the press pretty much in the last year, and so they're new, and I'd love to have you take a look at them. If we run out, I could always bring more copies next week. Um, this book, let's see, I wonder if I have all the copies here. Hmm. I think I may have given a few to Dr. Asher that I wasn't supposed to give to Dr. Asher. <laughs> We're making some of the book on the altar of gold and prayer available to the Spanish ministry, and I think maybe I had a few of these books stuck in with what I gave him, but um, we have a book called The Furtherance of the Gospel, and uh, it's uh, intended to be an in-depth exposition of the uh, in-depth introduction to the book of Philippians, and then it's an exposition of chapter 1, 1 through 2, 11. So an introduction to Philippians and then an exposition of Philippians 1, 1 through 2, 11. Uh, that's, I think, fairly in-depth. And then uh, this is um, volume two of the Philippians series, Even the Death of the Cross. This is an exposition of Philippians 2, 1 through 3, 9, a little overlap there. We're working on volume three, I Press Toward the Mark, and uh, that'll be the final volume in the series. And, uh, uh, not quite sure when that'll be off the press. We're, we're hoping maybe by early summer. Um, this is called The Greatest of These, and um, it's intended to be an in-depth exposition of the great love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, with a special focus on uh, the glory and the wonder of God's agape love. So this is all about 1 Corinthians 13 and what the Bible teaches about love. And uh, all the covers on these books were done by Olivia. This is called A Portrait of a King, and it's uh, built off of a sermon, and um, it's an introduction to the Gospel of Matthew. I thought we had a few more copies up here, but there are on the back table. There's another volume in the series called uh, The Towel and the Trowel, and that's uh, uh, a little book that introduces the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of the Servant. And then we've got another one back there called um, The Open Arms of the Father. And that is an introduction to the book of Luke, very easy to use. Olivia's done all the covers for those. I, I uh, think I included those other two Gospels in with the other pack of books, but those books are on the back table in the foyer there. And uh, we'd just love to have you look over them and uh, they're available on a donation basis. Um, and we have good news on the back of each of the books that it can be used as a tract if you give to somebody. Uh, I also brought some copies of Tremendous Truths About Trials. We've just done a reprint of this. Uh, the church is familiar with this book, but I just thought I'd bring some copies of that. And um, they're back there. And this uh, gives, uh, this is an exposition of 49 principles from the Word of God and Christian experiences to how we can 
respond positively when rough things happen in our lives. So uh, these books are back there. And as you know, it's a nonprofit missionary ministry. And um, uh, any donation you leave will go back into the ministry to help uh, pay the print and postage costs and uh, help us get books out free of charge for missionary and evangelistic and educational projects. So uh, love to have you look those over. It would be uh, such a blessing if I, if I knew they could be of use in your life. I also wanted to mention that my good friend, Dr. Ed Smith and I, about two years ago, embarked on a YouTube ministry, which we're still trying to develop and, uh, and, and uh, make better, but it's called Things Most Surely Believed. The way you can access it is uh, just yo-ho, Things Most Surely Believed. Evangelist Dan Manka has done 60 videos with us and he uses his puppets and his special musical instruments and all and his object lessons. So he's added a lot to that ministry. Uh, you could also reach it just by Yoho Manka. Uh, and I've put that on the attended sheet. So I'd love to have you listen into those. Uh, we've not done um, any videos in about the last nine months, but uh, I'm scheduled to get together with Dr. Ed tomorrow. We're gonna try to do some more that I've been working on. And, and uh, love to have you uh, Check that out, hope, hope it might be a blessing. And uh, we'd like to pass this attendance sheet around and if possible, have everybody sign it. Thank you. We said last week that the only miracle of Jesus' public ministry that's recorded in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. And we looked first of all at the setting in chapter 6, 1 through 4. Then we looked at the scarcity, chapter 6, 5 through 7. Then we looked at the supply, chapter 6, 8 through 9. And we made the point, oh, thank you. Oh, uh, on license 3317ED, the lights are on, if anybody needed to care for that. Thanks, Frank. Thank we pointed out that if you give your all, albeit small, into the capable hands of the master, then you can watch as he takes and blesses and breaks and distributes and multiplies and thus many, many people are fed through your life. Just like Jesus fed many using that little lad's lunch of five barley loaves and two small fishes. And then we looked uh, at the sufficiency in verses 10 and 11. And we pointed out, among other things, that uh, Jesus blessed the bread and the fish. And uh, that shows that we should say grace before our meals. I shared with you the uh, interesting story of the old farmer who came in from the country and stopped at a fast food restaurant. And he bowed his head and said grace. And then after he was done, an ill-mannered youth sitting at a table across from him tried to give the old farmer a hard time, and he said, hey, old man, does everybody thank God for the food where you come from? 
And I love the old farmer's answer. He said, the pigs don't. <laughs> and I believe we need to be thankful. There was this uh, little kid and his uncle, and the uncle was visiting, and uh, they sat down to eat. And uh, the little boy said, uh, you remind me a lot of my dog, Fido. And the uncle said, why? And he says, you just dig right in. <laughs> we need to say grace and thank God properly for the food. So many things for which to be thankful for, including tight caps. <laughs> I'd like to uh, look a little more at the sufficiency in verses 10 and 11. Would somebody read for us in a good loud voice? Well, as loud a voice as you can muster. Would somebody read for us verses 10 and 11 of John chapter 6? The sufficiency. Okay, thanks, Dave. And Jesus said, Make the men sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down in number about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed to the disciples, and the disciples to them that were sat down, and likewise of the fishes as much as they would. Thank you. On our set of lecture notes, we're beginning on the top of page 3. Top of page three. Some people have tried to explain this miracle in terms of mass psychology. All these people were out there and they were very stingy possessing what food they had and some people didn't have food or very little. And uh, this little lad makes a gracious gesture and gives his lunch to Jesus and everybody feels so inspired or so ashamed or so in between that they open up their lunches and start sharing with those who don't have and eventually everybody's fed. And uh, they say that's what really happened. It was kind of like mass psychology. It didn't really happen the way the eyewitness John under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit told us. J. Vernon McGee said he had a professor back at college who explained the miracle this way. He said, the day before the miracle, Jesus and his disciples took a bunch of loaves of bread and fishes and they stuck it into a cave in the area. And then when it came time to do the miracle, Jesus backed up to the uh, entrance of the cave and his disciples were in the cave and they were handing to him from behind the loaves and the fishes and the people didn't see what was happening under the long uh, robes, uh, a long robe of Jesus and his long sleeves and they just kept on giving it to him and he kept on giving it out and that's how the multitude was fed. Uh, I'll tell you, uh, liberals can come up with all kinds of uh, distorted and contorted views of uh, what beautifully and simply and wonderfully is recorded for us in the simplicity of uh, honest biblical history. Well, then we have the supply. The supply in verses 12 and 13. Would somebody read for us verses 12 and 13? Okay, thank you. Five barley loaves 
Thank you. By the way, if more than one person wants to read at the same time, that's a good thing because it's good to be zealous in a good thing. So we want to encourage that. Kevin had his hand up too there. My dear oldest son, Walter Ernest, was working years ago bagging food at a food lion in the Solar City area of North Carolina. And as he was uh, bagging groceries, there was this man who came up to the counter with an unusually large order. And he noticed that this man saved a lot of money on his big order by using a lot of coupons. Well, as the man went to write out his check to pay for the bill, my son said he normally would not look. Uh, but as he was just bagging the groceries, his eye just happened to fall on the check at the second the man was filling in his name. He wouldn't normally, you know, have looked, but he just happened to catch it out of the corner of his eye, as it were. But this man who had all these groceries and was saving so much money with all these coupons, he just happened to know this, that the man's name was Mr. Thrift. <laughs> <laughs> when the Lord supplies his people's needs, there is abundance, but no waste. There is abundance but no waste. Gather up the fragments that remain that nothing be lost. Though Christ the Lord could have multiplied these loaves and fishes many times over and in much greater number and with effortless ease, he has here taught us that the bounties of providence are not to be squandered, especially when there are so many people the world over and here at home that go to bed hungry. Gather up the fragments that remain that nothing be lost. These fragments teach frugality. Do they, in addition, suggest something even more? a great spiritual truth, if you will. Jesus collected all the leftovers, every one. Our Lord is very interested in leftovers and broken fragments. We read of his future ministry in Isaiah 42.3. It says, a bruised reed will he not break and the smoking flax he will not quench. The psalmist says in Psalm 147, 10 and 11, that the Lord delighteth not in the strength of the horse. He taketh not pleasure in the legs of a man. The Lord taketh pleasure in them that fear him and in those that hope in his mercy. David said in Psalm 51, 17, that the sacrifices of God are a broken heart, that a broken and contrite heart he would not despise. Sir Richard Baker asks, can a thing be made better by being broken? Can you drink out of a broken glass? 
Can you lean upon a broken staff? <laughs> but the other things may be made worse by being broken. Yet a heart is never at its best till it be broken. <laughs> For until it be broken, you cannot see what is in it. And until it be broken, it cannot give forth its sweetest aroma. And so while God demands a whole heart in dedication, he delights in a broken heart in sacrifices. As David said, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. And then last of all, we come to Roman numeral six, the sensation. The miracle created a sensation that was electric through the crowd. But they took things in the wrong direction. The sensation, verses 14 and 15. Kevin, would you read for us verses 14 and 15, please? Then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, this is of a truth that prophet should, that should come into the world. When Jesus therefore pierced that they would come, perceived that they would come, and take them by force to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. They were so excited over the miracle that they wanted to force his hand. They wanted by force to make him their king. And the disciples didn't think that was a bad idea at all. <laughs> they could very easily get caught up in the sensationalism of all, which is one reason why he impressed upon them to get into the boat and to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee while he dismissed the crowds. We have an interesting parallel passage here in Matthew chapter 14, 22 and 23. If somebody would read that for us, Matthew 14. 22 and 23. Yes, sir, thank you. And straightway Jesus constrained his disciples to get into a ship and to go before him unto the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray. And when the evening was come, he was there alone. Thank you. Sometimes, I think especially when we're younger, we have dreams about big ministries, big crowds influencing vast number of people, being in demand. And um, Jesus teaches us that it's not always what it might appear to be. Here are, is this vast throng and they want to make him king and they want to give him a big following. And he keeps God's will in perspective. He sees that the disciples were caught up in all of the excitement. They weren't thinking in terms of going to a cross and doing the work of the kingdom over a long period of time and with spiritual weapons. They liked the idea of, yeah, let's, <laughs> let's uh, have a kingdom and we'll have top positions. But as Jesus said on another occasion, so shall it not be among you. He said, the great ones of this world lord it over those who are under them and exercise authority upon them, but so shall it not be among you, but whosoever will be greatest of you, he shall be your minister. Whosoever 
will be chiefest among you shall be servant of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. So Jesus constrains them to get into the boat and go to the other side so that they will not get caught up in all this hoopla. And then to get perspective and to remember God's plan and God's timetable, he gets up into a mountain and prays during the night and also watches over his disciples as they're crossing the sea and will come to them later walking on the water. The feeding of the 5,000 made the multitude think of the manna in the desert and regard Jesus as the second Moses who would free them from the tyranny of Rome just as Moses liberated their forefathers, thank you, from the slavery in Egypt. Now, they were right that Jesus was a second Moses and an even greater deliverer. But they interpret it in terms of he'll raise an army and drive out the Romans, and they missed his great spiritual mission. He'll come back the second time and defeat all of Israel's enemies and reign. But uh, there's a spiritual preparation for that before the government of the world can be upon his shoulder. Isaiah 9, 6. The iniquity of us all must be laid upon him. Isaiah 53, 6. Jesus had to redeem the world so he'd have something to walk with when he came back to rule over the world. Or else the sinful material would have been utterly incorrigible. <laughs> And he has the perfect timetable. The book of Revelation is all about the lamb that was slain as the lion that shall reign. But when John looks to see the roaring lion, he sees a lamb as though it had been slain. And thus, in one brilliant stroke, the Holy Ghost is laid bare in Revelation 5, 5 and 6, the theme of the entire New Testament. Victory through sacrifice. The lion will reign, but first he has to come as the lamb. And the disciples had trouble processing a lot of that at this point. Sometimes we still do today. <laughs> now, Moses did predict in Deuteronomy 18 that God would raise up a prophet from the midst of your brethren, like unto me, who would speak God's words and unto him, you should pay attention. And if anybody doesn't listen to the words which God would speak through that prophet, it'll be required of him, Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 19. So the people are right that the Messiah would be a second of Moses and a greater than Moses and would set his people free. But they took it in the direction of a political revolution rather than a great spiritual revival that would change things from within to without and uh, put the cart before the horse and got all confused as to what Jesus' mission was. And they wanted to come by force and make him a king. They wanted to carry him to power on a wave of popular acclaim. But Jesus came into this world at Christmas to save you and me from a far worse tyrant than Rome. He came to save us from ourselves. <laughs> he said in John 8, 34, 
Verily, verily, I say unto you, whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. In the Greek language, that's very strong, is the doulos, is the bond slave of sin. And then he went on to say in John 8, 36, if the Son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. <laughs> we celebrated Martin Luther King holiday a few days ago, and uh, I think that's where Dr. King got that famous line in his, his speech about, uh, you know, free indeed, free at last. Uh, Jesus says, you'll be free indeed uh, uh, if you experience the salvation that I've come to bring. <coughs> It is precisely because the Jewish people did not realize the reason their Messiah really came that they invented the doctrine of two Messiahs. Not all held that view, but some held to two Messiahs, a suffering Messiah and a reigning Messiah. And they crucified the one true Messiah. <laughs> As John 1.11 says, he came unto his own and his own received him not. And in the words of the parable, the Jewish people said, we will not have this man to reign over us. We have no king but Caesar. Crucify him. His blood be on us and on our children. Now, A little later, when the crowds came to see Jesus, when he went to the other side, he was on the eastern shore, he walked on the water, got into the boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, came to the western shore. And the crowds uh, all gathered around them, including the people who were there on the eastern shore. They went around the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee, and they, and they were all eager to see him. And he says to them in verse 26, Verily, verily, I say unto you, ye seek me not because ye saw the miracle, but because ye did eat of the loaves and were filled. Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him hath God the Father sealed. The crowds had what one writer calls a lively sense of favor still to come. They liked the idea of the big free meal, and uh, they thought, well, we'd like to hang around and get a lot more of this. And they weren't seeking Jesus for the real true best reasons. The Romans got to the place when they passed from the Republic period into the Empire period, they had all this wealth and all this power and all this extra time and all these slaves and they began to get more soft and more luxurious and more undisciplined. And uh, it was hard to keep the populace in check. They always wanted to be entertained. <laughs> A lot of the Roman discipline of the earlier centuries had eroded away. And uh, the Roman government kind of decided to give them what they wanted because they didn't want to deal with all kinds of revolts and, and uh, uprisings. So the people were always clamoring for bread and circuses. Bread and circuses. 93 days each year were set aside by the Roman government for public games at, public, at government expense. The people just wanted to be fed and entertained and uh, 
this was beginning to creep into uh, the Jewish crowds too. Christ Jesus came not to be the king of their stomachs, but Lord of their lives and shepherd of their souls. And that's what this section's all about. Labor not for the meat which perisheth. Man shall not live by bread alone, except, except that bread be the blessed bread of Bethlehem, whose flesh is meat indeed, and whose blood is drink indeed. John 6, 55. Well, I wanted to spend some time with you last week and this week digging into this wonderful miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, and uh, I've enjoyed sharing this with you. Now I'd like to move in a little different direction for a while, beginning with page, well, actually, I was going to say page four, but we've put four different sets of notes together, so we go back to page one, which would have been page four. Do you remember when Jesus got into the boat on the very stormy Sea of Galilee? And as soon as, and, uh, and uh, when he was, excuse me, he was in the boat, he was sleeping, the winds were howling, the waves were heaving, and they wake Jesus up. He was uh, asleep on a pillow. And they wake him up and say, Lord, carest thou not that we perish? And he stands and he rebukes the wind, and it says that the wind's hushed and the waves fell still. He said, peace be still. He can speak to the raging deep and the stormy winds of your own soul and say, come unto me all ye that labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. And so he stills the storm. And we read in Matthew 8:27 that when he did that, the men marveled and said, what manner of man is this? that even the winds and the sea obey him. He can walk upon the wild waves of the sea as upon pavement, and if he chooses, turn them into wine. He is Lord of life. He is King of glory. He is creator of the ends of the earth. And what happened in Cana of Galilee is not all that hard to analyze. In the simple words of the poet, the conscious water saw its maker face to face and blushed, and the water was made wine. <laughs> I'd like to begin this section, and it'll be our most extensive section. I've put together about 47 questions on miracles, uh, with a greater focus on the miracles of Jesus, and I thought we'd have some discussion about uh, what the Bible teaches about miracles and uh, we'll make some points as we go along. After we've done this for a little while, we'll go back and do another miracle and look at it more in depth. But I thought we could take a general study of the topic of the miracles of the Bible and the miracles of Jesus. And so here's my first question. Is the birth of a child a miracle? Is the birth of a child a miracle? Life is a miracle, isn't it? We often say that uh, the birth of a child is a miracle, don't we? 
Now, if the birth of the child is a miracle, the virgin birth is really a miracle, isn't it? <laughs> There's a song that says, every time I hear a newborn baby cry, or touch a leaf, or see the sky, then I know why I believe. <laughs> the psalmist said in Psalm 139, verse 14, I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. It's a great act of God to bring a child into the world. And uh, you could just look at a little child and you should be able, when you look at a little child, to see God. See, every little child with his trust and his beauty and his simplicity, you look at that child and if your thinking is working at all naturally, you would think there's got to be a God who made that precious, tender little child. Now, that child also was born in original sin. Luther captured both aspects of this when he was standing before the crib of one of his newborn children. And he said to his wife in his colorful, characteristic fashion, well now, Katie, my rib, let us congratulate ourselves for we have just brought another sinner into the world. <laughs> Dr. Wilson Wall says that uh, he believes that everybody who's born into the world is born into the world with a real bad sin problem, except his grandchildren. <laughs> but um, David said, behold, I was shaped in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Every child that is born into the world is born with a really bad sin problem. And that the Bible states very honestly. But that's not the whole picture. Every child is also born in the image and likeness of God, and you can see the beauty and God in that simple, beautiful creation. That's also true. And Psalm 8, 2, yes, sir? What does that mean that we're made in the image of God? Oh, quite a question. Wow. That's a subject all to itself. I don't want to give you the answer that Reverend Hahn gave me. I was a young teen, I was a teenager growing up in Philadelphia, feeling God called me to the ministry. And I got on a bus one day and a minister in our church, Reverend Hahn, was seated on the bus. I sat next to him and we talked. And uh, while I had him on the bus, I said, Dr. Hahn, I want to ask you a question. What's it mean that man's made in the image of God? And I'll never forget his answer. He said, that's a deep question, and uh, wait till you get to seminary and you'll be in a better position to understand the answer. <laughs> Still remember that answer. But that is a very good question. Um, is it talking about the fruits of the Holy Spirit, Galatians 5? Well, a man who's born into the world is born in the image and likeness of God, though the image has been shattered because of sin. Uh, Galatians 5 is talking about when a person saved and has the Holy Spirit living in them, these Christ-like fruits will be manifest in his life. So that's kind of different, yeah. Um, can you, can, can, if Christ lives inside of us, can he leave us too at the same time? Can, can he what? Can he, leave, can he leave us? If he's, if he, they say the Holy Spirit can leave us. Um, well, I believe that in most independent Baptist churches, there's a belief in what's called the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That once Christ saves you, one of the benefits of your salvation 
is that the Holy Spirit will always live inside of you and make your body, your body his temple. And uh, even if you sin, you'll grieve him, but you won't sin him away. Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, um, whereby you're sealed unto the day of redemption, Ephesians 4, uh, 30. Uh, if any man hath not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his, Romans 8, 9. Know ye not that uh, your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which you have of God, who is in you, uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. So the Bible teaches once you're saved, the Holy Spirit takes up his residence in your body and he'll always be there. Uh, but we need to try to treat him as a very invited guest. But when we talk about the question of what does it mean to be made in the image and likeness of God, before the fall, the theologians referred to what they called original righteousness. When a man, when Adam was created and Eve, they were born with a sinless, righteous nature. So part of the image of God was that they would always choose right and honor God and have spiritual thoughts. But when through the misuse of free will, they sinned, man still created in the image and likeness of God, but the image is like a shattered mirror now. You can still see uh, God in people, but the image is shattered and imperfect. And only in Jesus Christ is that image remade. Um, according to Ephesians 4, 24 and, Galatia, and Colossians 3, 10, uh, where that image is remade when we're saved. Um, so original righteousness is not part of the image of God right now in fallen man uh, because of the sin problem. Uh, but you still see some of the image in God. Um, uh, the fact that uh, man has... Was through Christ. What's that? It's pretty much through Christ, though, right? Well, the restored image is through Christ. But, uh, see, man is still made in the image and likeness of God in spite of the fall. Uh, we're made in the similitude of God, James 3, 9. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God made he him, Genesis 9, 6. We're still made in the image of God, but it's a shattered image, and original righteousness has been lost. But that image would still include the fact that we have an intellect, we have emotion, we have a free will, we have a moral nature, we have an eternal soul, we can communicate with God uh, um, and pray. Uh, all this would be part of the image of God that's still in man, in part, although it's uh, it's a far cry from what it was before the fall, but it is restored when a person gets saved. And um, it's a very deep question, but that would be, I think, you know, a quick answer to that very good question. Uh, if you, if you, I don't want to overplay this, but God has two kinds of attributes. One is incommunicable. These are attributes that God alone possesses and that he doesn't give the man when he creates them. One such attribute would be uh, immensity or omnipresence. He's fully present in every place at the same time. But there's some attributes that are called communicable attributes. And these are attributes of God which while he possesses them infinitely and perfectly, he gives them to man when he creates them in a measure. Attributes like love, justice, courage, meekness, um, long-suffering. And I don't want to oversimplify this, but I believe that when you try to understand the image of God in man, I believe that to the degree that the man possesses the communicable attributes of God, love, justice, 
um, meekness, honesty, uh, morality. I believe that this is a good indication of what the image of God consists in. So these are some ways you could look at that. Yeah. Um, I don't want to go too far afield, but I'd be happy to talk to you more after, after the class about this. Yeah, that's a good question. Psalm 8.2 focuses on the more angelic aspect of being a child rather than more of the diabolical. It says, out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of the enemy, that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. The psalm begins by saying, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who has set thy glory above the heavens. It's talking about God revealing himself in his creation. And then it talks about how he reveals himself in a little baby. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thy enemies, that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. And Dr. Edersheim says, when a person looks at a little child who can't even frame sentences yet or words, he just lies there in googles and goggles with wonderful trust and innocency. Those little googles and goggles are a greater argument for the existence of God than all the sophisticated arguments of the atheist. Edersheim says, these are God's armor bearers, these little children who can't articulate a sentence, but you look at them and you see there's gotta be a God who created them in such sweet simplicity. And so, yes, the birth of a child is in a sense a miracle. And uh, Jesus quotes that passage from Psalm 82 in Matthew 21, 14 through 16 on Palm Sunday, when he says, out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained perfect praise. So there's a sense in which childbirth is a miracle. And there's a sense in which every child reflects some of God's beauty and wonder. But in the way the Bible uses the word miracle, Childbirth is not a miracle. If you define miracle as a great act of God that no man could do, then yes, it's a miracle. But the Bible has a more restricted definition of miracle. But the birth of a child is a wonderful act of God, isn't it? Now here's another question. Oops, I'll leave it there for a while. <laughs> is creation a miracle? It certainly is a great act of God, isn't it? If you can believe the first page of the Bible, you should have no difficulty believing in any miracle in this book. Amen. I should have no difficulty believing that Jesus walked on the water if he put the water there in the first place. Amen. I should have no difficulty believing that Jesus gave sight to blinded eyes if he put the eyeballs in the man's head in the first place. What could be a greater if I may use the word miracle, than creating everything out of nothing. Martin Luther said that if a man could create a rose, we would give him an empire. For God to create even a single blade of grass is way beyond anything man could ever do. So for God to create anything is a great work of God. But that he created everything, that's even greater. But what makes it even greater is he did it with the greatest of ease. 
And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Just as easy for God as you walking into a room and flipping on the light switch. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. He spake and it was done. He commanded. And it stood fast, says Psalm 33. So, in one sense, if you can believe creation, you should believe any miracle that the Bible says happened within God's creation. Creation is a great work of God. Our Lord God, behold, thou hast made the heaven and the earth by thy great power and stretched out arm, and there is nothing too hard for thee. Jeremiah 32, 17. But in the way the Bible uses the word miracle, Creation is not a miracle. Though it's a great work of God. Okay. Yes, sir. I have a uh, testimony talking about miracles and stuff like that. I'd like to share my testimony. Uh, could, could I ask you to hold off on that? Yeah. I have a section in my questions on is God still doing miracles today? And that would be the perfect place for, for you to share that if you wouldn't mind, okay? Right. Yeah. Uh, hold on to that, and when we get to that question, Hopefully in a few weeks, I'd love to have you share that, okay? Thanks. Here's another question. Is conversion a miracle? God saving your soul. We often say it's a miracle, don't we? We often say it's the greatest miracle that could ever happen to you. And if by miracle you mean a great work of God, a supernatural work of God, what only God could do, it is a miracle second to none. Think about what a great thing creation is. I mean, what conversion is. What could be a greater miracle than creation? Using the word miracle is a great work of God. What could be a greater miracle than creation? What could be greater than creating everything out of nothing? <laughs> There is no miracle greater than creation. There's none. I know not any. There is none but one. What could be a greater miracle than creating something out of nothing? Creating something pure out of something that's filthy. That's the miracle of creation. Who could bring a clean thing out of an unclean? Not one, Job 14.4. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Wow. 2 Corinthians 5.17. The miracle of creating something pure out of something that's filthy. That's the miracle of recreation. That's the miracle of salvation. That's the miracle of amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. Mel Trotter says that before he got saved, he was so low down, he had to reach up to touch bottom. Or as one preacher put it, I was so low down, I had to reach up to tickle the belly of a rattlesnake. <laughs> the story is told that Mel Trotter, on a Friday, would go to the tavern and spend a lot of his paycheck on booze. 
and uh, have little money left over to take care of his family. And his eight-year-old little girl died of malnutrition, I understand. And the mother went out and got a quick job to try to raise enough money to put shoes on the little girl's feet at the visitation, at the funeral home. And after the people left, Trotter broke in and took the shoes off the little girl's feet and went out and converted it into booze. He said, I was so low down, I had to reach up to touch bottom. He was walking drunk down Pacific Garden Street in Chicago, and a kind gentleman outside the Pacific Garden Mission invited him to come in. And he came in and heard the preaching of the gospel. He went down the aisle, got gloriously saved, walked back to his seat sober, got a lot of training and experience, and then he went out from the Pacific Garden Mission and started missions all around America to help people who were like he was. Years later, he was visiting back at the Pacific Garden uh, Mission and uh, was giving his testimony. And uh, one of the men in the audience uh, tried to give him a hard time and he said, how do you know you're really saved? And Mel Trowler said, my dear fellow, because I was there when it happened. <laughs> and the greatest miracle of all can happen to you if you get saved. Amen. And you can be there when it happens. <laughs> if any man be in Christ Jesus, he's a new creation and God makes all things new. But as wonderful as creation is, the Bible doesn't use the word miracle of the, of the new creation. You can call it a miracle in the sense of a great act of God. And I like to do that. But in the biblical sense of the word miracle, that's not a miracle. Another question. Is fulfilled prophecy a miracle? Is fulfilled prophecy a miracle? Like if God says something and 400 years later it comes wonderfully true. Would that be a miracle? Fulfilled prophecy? You might say that fulfilled prophecy is a miracle of knowledge. When we think of miracles in the Bible sense, we're normally thinking of miracles of power. But prophecy is a miracle, but it's a miracle of knowledge. Miracles in the Bible are an expression of God's omnipotence, but fulfilled prophecy is an expression of God's omniscience. He knows all things. For example, some 700 years before Jesus was born, the burning finger of prophecy pointed to a little town called Bethlehem in the region of Ephratah, in the hill country of Judea, in the land of Israel, on the eastern border of the Roman Empire, as the future birthplace of the great Messiah saying, but thou Bethlehem Ephratah in the land of Judah art not the least among the thousands of Judah. For out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Micah 5.2. Boy, that's a miracle of knowledge. Bolton David Heiser in his book, fine book, Evolution and Christian Faith, refutes evolution and uh, demonstrates creation. And most of his arguments are scientific and historical throughout most of the book, but towards the end he gets into some other areas of Christian evidence. And he gets into prophecy and mathematics. And he says, what would the chances be 
of a false messiah just happening to fulfill any given prophecy in the Old Testament about the coming Messiah. He said, let's say there's one out of two chances. Now to say one out of two is being very generous to the opponents of Christianity. What would be the chances of a false Messiah just happening to be born in Bethlehem? Out of the thousands of cities and villages and hamlets and towns and metropolises on planet Earth, much greater than one out of two. And some prophecies don't have any odds in their favor of being fulfilled by a false messiah, however small, because they involve direct supernatural power to come into being. Prophecies like the virgin birth, the bodily resurrection, opening the eyes of the blind, they don't have any odds in their favor, zero. So I think we're being, for the sake of illustration, very generous to the opponents of Christianity by saying, if a false messiah had one out of two chances of fulfilling any given prophecy of the Old Testament, at that ratio, what would be the odds against them fulfilling 92 prophecies? David Heiser says it would be the equivalent of a blindfolded man picking out a colored bean from a mass of white beans the size of planet Earth. 93 prophecies from a mass of white beans twice the size of planet Earth. 94 prophecies from a mass of white beans four times the size of planet Earth. And for each additional prophecy you throw into the equation, the mass of white beans doubles. According to one careful scholarly account made by Canon Lytton some years ago, Jesus in his first coming fulfilled 332 Old Testament prophecies. What conclusion can we reach other than Philip's conclusion? When in his excitement, he came to his friend Nathaniel and said in John 1.45, we have found him. We have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. If there be such a thing as fulfilled messianic prophecy, if there be such a thing as Jesus of Nazareth fulfilling the messianic prophecies in the Old Testament, and I believe we can demonstrate that. Four wonderful truths naturally follow. If Jesus fulfilled the prophecies of the coming of Messiah in the Old Testament, and he did, we can thereby logically prove four great propositions of the Christian faith. The first is, there is a great God, for who but he can forecast the future? Did you hear about the Virginia weatherman who recently moved to Florida because the weather disagreed with him? You know, with all of our scientific sophistication and meteorological marvels, sometimes it's hard to get the weather right seven days out or three days out although we appreciate all the help weathermen give us. But some of these prophets would predict things in detail or great sweeping things or even impossible things like the resurrection hundreds of years in advance. And they all come to pass in due time. So I believe that fulfilled messianic prophecy proves first of all that a great God exists. I believe it proves secondly that this great God is Lord of history. <clears throat> For who but he can set into motion such grand designs? 
carry them out across the wide centuries in the face of mounting human and satanic opposition and bring them all to pass in due season. I believe it proves thirdly that God inspired the writers of Holy Scripture. For who but he could pour such brilliance into their spirit? And fourthly, I, prove that, I believe it proves that Jesus of Nazareth is the promised Messiah. For who but he could even begin to answer to this amazing array of ancient announcements? So fulfilled prophecy is a wonderful study all to itself. If you please, it's a miracle of knowledge. But when the Bible speaks of a miracle, it doesn't normally mean prophecy. Which brings us to this question, what is a miracle? How is that word used in the Bible? What is a miracle? I'd like you to think about that a good deal this week. And uh, when we start next week, we'll talk about what is a miracle in the Bible sense. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God, or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, you can visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened. And we want to encourage you to share this message with others. May the truth of God's word be your guide as you strive to follow Christ and make him known to others.